Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is delighted to offer the Lift Every Voice Scholarship for Master's Degrees, which covers 100% of student tuition. This scholarship recognizes the need for amplified voices at the intersection of theology and racial justice. More information can be found at bc.edu slash stmscholarships. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Professor Jessica Wilson. Jessica Houghton Wilson is the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine University and formerly the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. She is the author of several books, most recently, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. She's a woman of deep faith and a fine intellect. Her accolades and accomplishments are really too numerous to name them all. She also wrote Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and Dois Gurievsky. That was the winner of a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. She speaks around the world on topics as varied as Russian novelists, Catholic thinkers, and Christian ways of reading. I recently saw her at the fourth annual Catholic Imagination Conference at the University of Dallas. She identifies as a Catholic with a little c, meaning she's steeped in that same sacramental worldview and is actually an Anglican woman and a woman of very deep faith. And in this episode, we talk about many things. In particular, what I think you find very interesting is talking about reading as an imaginative exercise. And guess what? We talk about, you know, you can learn something from children about reading. There are things that we've lost that children have, and we can learn from them about reading. We talk about the classics. We talk about writers of color and women, and we talk about what we deem part of the canon, what should be a part of the canon, what's missing from the current canon. We also talk about, is Toni Morrison a Catholic writer or not? You know, some people struggle to see her as a Catholic writer, and we discuss that. We also talk about Julian of Norwich, St. Julian of Norwich and her showings. And when we talk about showings, we're talking about her mystical experiences that she reflects upon in writing. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by following this podcast on your favorite podcast app and by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Professor Wilson is up next. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. 
Thank you. It's so good to see you and get to talk to you. It is really good to see you too. I mean, I feel like I just saw you a few weeks ago at the Catholic Imagination Conference. And I'm sure some listeners like, Catholic Imagination Conference, what's that? Could you tell us a little bit more about the Catholic Imagination Conference and your history with it, really? Sure. Well, the first one was in 2015. And when I saw the announcement, I mean, it was Tobias Wolf, Ron Hansen, Julia Alvarez, Dana Joya. And I remember I had just had a baby. <laughs> and he was only six weeks old when I flew out to this conference. So it demanded at least two days away from my infant, which was almost impossible to sacrifice. And yet I am still glad that I paid that sacrifice because of the great fruit that's been born. Now it's seven years later and I directed the fourth iteration of the Catholic Imagination Conference. So it really should be called a festival more than a conference. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, as you hopefully experienced, it was about bringing people who love the Lord to come together and say, okay, what is the way that we know God through the beauty of our gifts? And how are all of our gifts being manifest in such a way that we're able to share what Christ is doing in the world? And so it was just a variety of people in you know, your space, but also mm-hmm. and there were several podcasters there because I think that's one of the mediums in which we're cultivating and sharing Catholic imagination now, but also artists, musicians, writers, lots of different ways of showing who God is and what he's doing. I just, this is to me the high compliment. A girlfriend of mine was there and we were going to go to the dinner that night. And she said, you know what? After so many hours of deep thought, she said, I need to just go lay down and really take in everything that I experienced and was thinking about today or made to think of through all these conversations. So it was like her body wanted rest so that her mind could still float. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely a full soul experience. I mean, I think it definitely filled people up overflowing. Yes, that's a good, a full soul. So I'll say it was soulful. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a very soulful experience. Yeah. And you you mentioned um, podcasts, and, and I just want to ask you, I mean, I, you have a new podcast called The Scandal of Reading. I love mm-hmm. the title, by the way, of the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, it started really organically, which I think is the joy of good things coming about organically, right? Rather than kind of planned and plotted, it was more something that grew out of my interest and examination of what does it mean to be scandalously holy, Mm. you know, God's holiness being other than us. And what are some of the ways in, in this time and place that we can access or move towards that holiness? And for me, it's been reading and learning more about what does the life of reading great literature lead to? How can it help us pursue the holiness that we're after? So the scandal of reading is an examination of old books, beautiful stories, saints' lives, fiction, poetry, but with Christian writers who are writing now mm-hmm. and are helping us understand why these old works are so important to what we're doing. You know, I, as I think about reading and thinking about old books, and it just makes me think of how many books I've read so far over my lifetime. And Jessica, I have to confess, my powers of recalling everything are really not that great anymore. How do you do it? How do you recall yeah. all the rich things that you've read? So hopefully I, I am spending a lot of time remembering, but I've taken a lot of confidence in the fact that if I don't remember it, it still has formed me. Mm. Because I think it's still worth reading and taking in and just trusting that seeds are being planted Good is being done in my heart and soul, even if I can't recall the exact source or the exact moment. There's this great quote by G.K. Chesterton that I love in which he says about his 
misremembering of Charles Dickens when he wrote a book on Charles Dickens. And he said, of course, the quotes are inexact. I digested Dickens so fully, it comes out looking different. Ah. (laughs) I mean, it's very Chestertonian, like the wit, but I think that's true. I don't think it's a matter of trying to recall it perfectly, Mm. but we do know that when we're taking these things in, they really are feeding us. They really are shaping us and fruit's going to be born from that. Even if we can't cite everything that we've read and we can't remember exactly what that page was or where we found that it's still shaping how we're thinking and seeing the world. A friend of mine would say that's a lot like raising a kid, right? (laughs) They don't remember the first few years of life, but they are definitely formed by what they experienced those first few years. Those are the most formative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I even tell that with parents. A lot of time we found at a school here, a classical Christian school in our town, And I try to tell this to parents. It's not really about making sure that your kid recites all the history or knows all the facts. It's just recognizing that they're being shaped by a worldview in which the story began before them, right? They're learning the history, not so that they can remember 1845, something happened, which would be great. And especially we do need that recollection of information as well, but more about like, wow, something important was always happening. And I'm entering the story now and it's going to keep happening. And we want that imagination to be there much more than the the particulars to be exact. That so reduces people's anxiety. <laughs> that yes. the, this is the purpose of it. And we get that maybe you're not going to remember the exact dates all the time, right. but there's a larger purpose to this and it, it forms us. And it makes me think about, you know, I wish I had someone talk to me about reading, like what I experienced reading your new book, Reading for mm-hmm. the Love of God, to really take note of, well, why do I read? How do I read? What do I read? What is the purpose of my reading? That I didn't, I don't feel like I really got that kind of self-analysis, I guess, when I'm approaching Mm -hmm. something coming up through school. And I went to Catholic school first at 12th grade, and I had to read a lot of different things. But it was, you know, you're going to read this because this is what we're assigning type of thing. Right. So I wonder, you know, how can we help our kids, especially in this age of screens and whatnot, Mm -hmm. how can we help our kids develop a love of reading and have them really think about why they're reading? How does the reading experience strike them? How does it help them develop their relationship with God? Where do they see truth in it? You know, all that kind of stuff. Right. What tips might you give to us for helping our kids in that way? Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is it's easier probably to learn from your children how to read (laughs) than for us to kind of walk backwards and try to teach them how to read. Because if you imagine yourself as a child, you had this proclivity towards certain texts. Like you would pick up certain books off the shelf. They looked interesting. You didn't have a rubric in your mind. Like, should I read this? Should I not read this? Mm -hmm. It was, Ooh, this looks good. And you would grab things from the library and you would love them and you would read them several times over and you would memorize parts of them and you would tell the stories to your parents. I mean, I have a nine, seven and four year old right now and they just, they come home and they share the best parts of their books and they share what they learned. And there was more of a, a natural desire to read and share and love books. Mm -hmm. What I found, the reason I wrote this book is after 20 years almost of teaching college, when they get to college, they've already lost that. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it happens in junior high and high school where maybe they're being taught text incorrectly and they're having to dissect them and take them apart. And they don't feel that same love and joy for what it is that they're reading. And there is a lot of competition between the screens or the things that feel more pressing or building that college resume or whatever starts taking more priority and reading becomes less of something that you do for love or Mm -hmm. even better for the love of God Mm -hmm. and more something that you have to do and you have to get through so that by the time you're in college or you're an adult, 
it's a duty, it's an obligation. And we've lost the childlikeness that we're supposed to have when it comes to reading. So I really enjoyed your book, Reading for the Love of God, which is coming out in March of 2023, right? That's right. And I recommended the book. First of all, some of the vocabulary was just so wonderful to me. I was like, oh, I love these words. The way she, the way you <laughs> unfold things, the way you have us think about things, the questions that you ask us mm. and these little quizzes in the book too. And sometimes I was like, gosh, I'm all over the place. I could be this one or this one or this one. And then I felt so much <laughs> relief. You're like, there is no right answer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I love that. And um, you referenced 1984 in Fahrenheit mm-hmm. 451, which, you know, those serve as cautionary tales about the loss of literacy and the consequences of that for free and fair mm-hmm. societies. And I'm wondering, do you see any parallels with our society? Yes. I mean, I've always been drawn to that picture in Fahrenheit 451, usually that ends like the hopeful picture Mm -hmm. at the end of the work. But when you read all the way through the novel, there's so much darkness and there's so much caution Mm -hmm. before the hope gets there in which the world is enslaved to screens Mm -hmm. and they have forgotten Mm -hmm. what it means to be real people among other real people. And they are accepting these substitutionary families. I mean, literally, Montag's wife always sleeps with earbuds. There's always noise in her ears, even when she sleeps. She wakes up and she just lives in a reality TV show that takes place on every wall of her home. And it's a frightening vision. I think there was a film version done recently in which George Michael, I think, was the actor who played Montag. But what was interesting about the update for the film that I think makes it even scarier to think about the book in our context is all of the books are not being censored. They're being changed into ideograms and into emojis. So you can read (laughs) anything, Uh, but you're only, you're losing words. Like you just said, you loved vocabulary. You loved... The words, words allow a lot of freedom Mm -hmm. for the reader Mm -hmm. because you bring your own experience to the word. There's multiple layers of meaning to each word, whereas emojis lose that multi-layered feel. There's a lot of freedom lost with emojis. There's a lot more preaching at one another or what we see in social media, talking at one another that happens through those various mediums and discourses. And books are supposed to free us from that. There's a liberation that comes with reading that we're going to lose if we're not careful. I also wonder, how would you read an emoji out loud? Yeah, yeah, you can. You know, if you're reading a book, how would you, so you can't even- Where's the communal? Yeah, yeah. Because I think about, you know, before my daughter could read, we used to read to her. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I was like, how would you even convey that? you become more of the silo. And that, of course, that's what the book wants to show us is the problem with screens is that we become these silos, you know? And then each individual person, it's going to sound too dark to say Satan wins, but realistically, like if each of us becomes our own authoritative God in our own little cosmos, right? Right. That's an imitation of demonic impulses to like each be your own little God. Yeah. And that's really what those mediums, if we spend too much time in them, are trying to form us into. You know, the narcissism in that too. Yeah. As I think about it, it's so inwardly turned in the, in Good. a deforming way. Yeah. Hmm. Need to think about that. We'll be right back. One other reference you also made in the book that resonated with me was Frederick Douglass. And yeah. you recount his story on how we learned to read while living in slavery and really more to the point how reading helped him aspire to and eventually escape slavery mm-hmm. to freedom. Yeah. Uh, do you think the written word still has that kind of power today? I sure hope so. 
Mm. I sure hope so. And I tried to draw it all the way up to at least we can get to James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And I think there's still some, you know, we can still go up to now and talk about how writers express liberation and help us free ourselves from our own minds, from our own narcissism, from our own solipsism through the written language. I mean, Baldwin, when he kind of writing in the legacy of Douglas, when he writes about, I read myself out of Harlem, mm-hmm. right? I read myself out of the limitations that were cast upon me. In our current culture, I think the limitations placed on us is like, we're becoming just consumers and producers and narcissists. We can read ourselves out of that slavery because we can gain other perspectives. We can read other people's points of view. We can read history. We can read ways of seeing the larger story, reading perspectives from other places in the world. We can read ourselves out of narcissism if we so choose. You know, there is a liberation that's still available through the written word. Mm-hmm. There's like this sentence that just strikes you home and you're like, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing. I'm so glad you mentioned because I think we talk about that in the book with St. Augustine. You know, to me, sometimes there is a shutting down of ideas because people are afraid to engage mm-hmm. with things. And I was like, that's not how we as Christians do things. We can engage with things and find what's beautiful and true in it and take that. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I feel like you and I partially had a conversation like this at the Catholic Imagination Conference. So I know that we agree on this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is bothering me so much about Christian culture right now is the fear. Mm-hmm. I do not understand the self-protecting fear that Christians are living in. Our God tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Like yes. they won't stand because we are on the offense. Right. And we are on the offense for like good and truth and beauty. We have nothing to fear from these writers. Right. Correct. Right? I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. we can read these things with a complete liberated spirit, knowing if there's truth there, we'll find it. And if there's not, nothing will hurt us. I wholeheartedly agree. And yeah. I also feel like, how are we also able to share the truth of certain things if we refuse to have any knowledge of it? Right, right. You know, and I was like, but then how do you have to pull the truth and beauty out of things that? you know, people don't see that truth and beauty and maybe you can help point them to it who are maybe in that subject matter or whatever. I was talking with Professor Robbie George a long time ago about something. And he says, sometimes engaging with these other things helps you also understand even more where the truth is in something that you already know or experience because you see the flaws. The flaws are so clear or the logical inconsistencies are so clear in other things, when you read it and you're like, ah, I see where the error is here. Right. And I see why this particular thing that I've come to understand is true is true. That's so good. So even learning more for yourself about what it is that you have come to know is true or encountered. So always this learning experience, mm-hmm. right, that we can have from engaging in these different ideas. But I love the fact that there's no fear. We should not be fearful. Mm-hmm. And I think this fear that people have also makes them then, in some cases, have so much distrust of the other person or even hatred of the yes, other person, yes. which I'm like, no, right, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's the wrong disposition to people who are our family, made in the image and likeness of God as well. And we hope to spend yeah. eternity with them too, right? And so this kind of hatred and distrust and I would say tearing apart of community is something that I don't think is good. Yeah. Well, you know, Toni Morrison actually is a great example of this as far as teaching her to readers Mm. because, well, a lot of Catholic writers find it difficult to imagine her Catholic. Mm. 
And when they're actually reading her work, they struggle for the Catholic because there's so much of the Catholic experience that doesn't look like Walker Percy or Mm -hmm. Flannery O'Connor, right? Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of these imaginations who've only been formed thinking Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene, like a certain kind of Catholicism, they struggle with Toni Morrison. And there is darkness and there's often abortion Mm -hmm. in Toni Morrison's work, but everything is done through her particular lens And when you submit yourself to that way of seeing the world and not try to judge her by the rubric of O'Connor or Percy, but instead see her on her own terms in conversation with the church, Mm -hmm. you actually understand more about your faith, more about the Catholic church than you do if you don't have her stories. And so it's this openness to to being wounded by some literature, but it's also an openness to see things you hadn't seen before. Because if you're so closed off, you're not going to understand. And you're not going to receive some of the gifts that are there because you're not willing to be read by Morrison. You're too busy judging Morrison. Oh, that's such a good point. And then, you know, I also think about our Catholicism and what the word even Catholic means, right? Like, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, we have different rites within our church. You know, we've got the Eastern rites, you've got the Latin rite. So even there to see even the way the liturgy expressed in different ways in different languages, why would we expect Catholic writers only come in one flavor? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get a varied palette, if you will, of Catholic writers. It's it's like a delicious Let's really be Catholic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, last year I spoke with Anika Prather. She came Mm -hmm. on the podcast and she teaches the classics at Howard University. Yeah. And she made the case against the notion that the classics are not for people of color because they're written by quote unquote, you know, dead white men. Yeah. Yeah. She argued the classics include not only people of color, but also were written by them in some cases. Mm -hmm. And you've made the point online and in your work that the classics should not only be read by all, but also that the canon could be expanded Mm -hmm. to include others whose writings reflect the great truths and values found in the classics. Yeah. And I want to give you an opportunity here to maybe explain more deeply what you mean here, what you're hoping for, and the kind of reaction you've seen to this view. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say Nika and I are good friends. So Anika and Angel Adams-Parham at UVA, Jen Frey at USC, and Zena Hitz at St. John's and I are kind of like this sisterhood of traveling (laughs) classical education people (laughs) who believe the tradition is larger Mm -hmm. than it is currently being said to be. So I do think the classics mean any living text that is true, beautiful, and good that should be handed down. Mm. And for whatever reason, some of these texts were not handed down, usually because they're written by women or persons of color. Mm. And it does not mean that they are not as great just because they didn't have influence in the main dead white male trajectory of history right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we see. So works like by Christine de Pizan, Anna Julia Cooper, some of these writers are so worth inviting into the conversation. They should have never been lost. Their works are talking to the past. They're not ex nihilo. They're not just added on. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like Christine de Bazan, she has these characters that lady philosophy, like Boethius has, she has lady reason and righteousness and lady justice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they're, they're talking to the past and they're part of the conversation. So for me, the classics means that it is not this dead product that we have mm-hmm. hanging around our necks and it's unchangeable. No, it's, it's alive. And it's only as alive as the people who are reading it and continue to read it and live it. Mm. I love that. I love how you explain it. <laughs> That's mm. 
And it also says, you know, as we rediscover or even discover writers that, you know, pull us toward the truth or consider Mm -hmm. some beautiful things that we should include them and pass them down. That's really, that's really nice. Huh. Now I'm thinking about things I want to share with my (laughs) husband and read with him again and see what we can talk about with our child, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Anika, you know, she she turned me on to Anna Julia Cooper, which I just think is phenomenal. But that great line from W.E.B. Du Bois about not passing the color line, yeah. Anna Julia Cooper actually wrote that before him. Mm, <laughs> she, mm. she writes about how when she's truly with Sappho and Socrates, she mm. finds these friendships in which they judge her not. And those are the kind of friendships that we should all be finding in the tradition, that there should be this great hospitality of the human story. Mm-hmm. And every single one of us are already invited to the table. We're already at the table. It's just that for so long, we started ignoring some of the people at the table. Well, <laughs> so yeah. They weren't there. <laughs> so who's some other persons of color that you think we need to retrieve that were left out of the canon? Well, I don't like talking about Western tradition. Mm. I do believe that there is a centrality to the Western tradition because of the resources and because of the great wealth that was there for so long. But I don't think it needs to be exclusively Western when we talk about passing down the tradition. Okay. Because if we look at Lao Tzu, for example, Lao Tzu, the Tao, the way, had a great influence all the way up to C.S. Lewis. Right. And so here's a writer in which if we're not studying, what are we missing to even understand Lewis or to understand Thoreau, who was influenced by the Eastern writers? Mm. So this idea of the history of ideas only having a Western flavor to it is actually a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And this is where Angel Adams Parham is really great. She's been uncovering a lot of the Middle Eastern texts that influenced and became Western versions. So the Western writers were taking things from the Middle Eastern writers but never giving credit to the Middle Eastern sources. Mm. So it is just a much broader tradition than we had imagined or understood in the first place. So it's again, it's not adding people on. It's just recognizing the people that were there. Mm. So I love that. And I think, boy, that's really freeing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, that's really freeing. And I do remember speaking with someone once and they were like, you know, I went to school and I'd read all these things and people were laughing at me because they were like, oh, I haven't read any of the great books. And it felt like, no, I've read great books, but they're ones that you haven't recognized are great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. And it was a way in which they also try to say, look, I belong here Mm -hmm. at the table with you and I have something to add to these conversations because I have read things that have revealed truths about the human person or have me consider the world and and values and things like that. So yeah, I think that's great. What do you think the reaction to having that view has been? Because I can tell you, I have... (laughs) <laughs> I have experienced, you know, that people are just like, what? No, uh-uh. we have, you right. know, that you're missing something. If that's what you're reading, it's supposed to read. Well, so what has been your experience of people's reaction to seeing the classics that way? There's been a lot of pushback. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's been pushback because a fear. Again, there is a fearfulness that if I say we should read Julian of Norwich, I'm going to replace Dante. Oh, right. Right. Or we're going to lose Chaucer or, you know, so there's a fear that I'm going to bring someone else to the table and it means someone else has to leave. And I think that is a miscalculated fear. I think there is room enough, even in a syllabus, even in a curriculum to teach all things, as many things as you possibly can. And it's not about breadth, but it is about depth. But if you're introducing Julian of Norwich and you have to give up, maybe like you teach a couple of 
the questions in Thomas Aquinas' <laughs> Summa, right. <laughs> you know, and you have to shorten some of those discussions. What you're doing is not substituting Norwich for Aquinas, right? Like, or vice versa. Like what you're actually doing is saying, okay, I prioritize recognizing that women make up a large percentage of the population and they are part of the story and that Julian's work is as beautiful and can have the same kind of transformative effect on someone that Aquinas can in a different light, but they're both praising God with their work. And I'm going to teach students how to love this work. And if I teach them how to love and read it well, and then I also point them to people like Aquinas, then they can continue that discovery and they can continue that investigation. But if the goal of my class is to teach them how to love and how to read and how to search these things out, then it's going to be a never ending discovery. And I haven't shut anyone out of the canon. Beautiful. And also, I think it does something to the student's mind as well, because I have seen, at least online anyway, people push that, you know, women have never contributed anything. <laughs> I was like, what? Yep. I was like, what yep. about your mama? You know, <laughs> what about your mama? Yes. She? But, you know, this idea that we just had nothing to contribute to the big ideas in oh, the world. And goodness. I was like, that's, you've been poorly formed in your studies right. because you've only engaged in works by men, that mm-hmm. that is a conclusion that you make about women, you know? Well, so that's so, yeah. Who is, who is Gregory of Nyssa without Macrina? Mm-hmm. Who is Augustine without Monica? Who is John and Charles Wesley without Susanna Wesley? Like the entire tradition <laughs> includes the influence of women, but we just did not prioritize them. And their work also has benefited, I will say it actually has benefited by not being included because there is so much that they were not set in certain paradigms when they did their work. Right, okay. They have these great contributions to the history of ideas because they weren't in the main line. Mm. And it's still orthodox. It's not heterodox. It's not marginalized because it's heretical. It's actually creative and inventive and brings something to the conversation that maybe we hadn't looked at before and can enrich the conversation in a way that's exciting. You know, I keep, I also keep thinking because women move through the world differently because we are, I would say, positively encumbered to other humans by virtue of being women, that there's something in that, that we bring in these ideas that maybe men don't necessarily see. So there is that richness to humanity, of course, because mm-hmm. we're the other half of humanity. We complete humanity. That reading women at different times, different spaces, I think give us a different perspective because, you know, they're not men. Right. And, and they have something rich to add there that we need to consider because their experiences are going to be different from men. Mm-hmm. And they bring that perspective and that truth, you know. Right, th- th- absolutely. Through that. And that's something I think we need to spend more time with. And I remember reading, it was some, was it John Paul II was saying we should spend more time also um, meditating on the truth of women or or why Mm. God made us male and female. Like there's something rich to us here in that. I don't know, just just something I was thinking about. Speaking about the mystic Julian of Norwich, can you explain to people what her showings are and what we can learn about them? Sure. So she's someone else I write about in reading for the love of God. I've taught her for years and I started thinking about her when I was reading this book about how she reads her showings. Mm -hmm. So she's a really interesting case because here she is in, you know, the 14th century. She probably was a mom based on her work. She may have been a, a Jew who converted or her family's converted to Christianity. So she may have been raised knowing Hebrew in her household 
she does seem to have an understanding of the Old Testament that she translates in her work. And so she's drawing from scriptures. And when she was middle-aged, she became an anchoress, meaning she like walled herself into the side of the church. And she did so not out of like any masochism or anything, just to kind of limit herself. She did so in a way of really living out the gospel, how to give herself entirely to the church, how to die to herself and live only for God. And she spent the last 15 years or so of her life going over these showings that she had received, these revelations of who God was, and interpreting those revelations as though she was interpreting a text, mm -hmm. and as though she was interpreting the Bible, trying to study them, submit to them, fully get them. I mean, in her first set of examinations of those showings, she says like, should I not speak because I'm a woman? But mm. no, I have to speak. These were given to me, even if I am a woman, mm -hmm. I'm meant to share them. I am not meant to keep them to myself. So there's this real honesty and bravery in her showings where she knows the regulations, especially at that time against women, yeah. against women as preachers or teachers of Christianity. And yet she can't be held back. She has to share the things that God showed her about who he is. And she does that so beautifully, both in her life as an anchoress, but also in her text that she gives us. How should we, or how can we, are we to imitate Julian of Norwich? I think so, but I believe in metaphorical imitation. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to wall myself into a church. Right, same, 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 same. <laughs> but at the same time, what does that mean to take what she did in her life and imitate it in our own? What does it mean to completely let go of our own desires and our own ambitions and give ourselves fully over to the word of God, to the life of the reader, to this understanding of love being the center text of everything that you do, right? At the very mm -hmm. end of her revelation, she ends with, and God revealed to me, who gave you these revelations, love? And what is their meaning? Love. And what is the final word then? Love. And so everything becomes about this sacrificial death to self that begins and ends and means love. That's so beautiful. And it's, you know, I think that's about Christ. <laughs> you know? yes. It's about Christ. And also there's something very female about it too. I think about going from being a single woman to a wife, to a mother, that there was a death to myself in certain aspects yes. of my life, but it gave through love a new life in a way in which I hadn't expected Yes. You know, and there's a letting go of something you used to have in exchange for giving to someone else, whether it's your husband or your child or both, really, mm -hmm. that creates something new and something beautiful and something deep so that the loss of whatever that other thing was that you gave up is transformed into something beautiful and new and alive, which yeah. is love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a connection with her understanding of love to what it means to be a mother, mm -hmm. to be someone who sacrifices, to be someone who gives of themselves the way Christ does. I mean, that's how she's using that word. And it's such a it's such a beautiful way of understanding what love means. And I would say through your book, we realize that reading is about our sanctification and our drawing closer to the word himself. That's what I say from your book. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to tell people they've got it when it comes out, Reading for the Love of God by Jessica Hooten Wilson. Something I think, you know, just get it, read it. And it makes you, for, at least for me, I was pulling out my old books and just touching the pages and realizing mm -hmm. how much I love that kind of experience of the book or books yes. through the 
whole body experience of reading my mind and also touching the pages, although I know a lot of people read now without having to touch the page. But it's just such a rich experience. It is. So thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for speaking with me. And I might have to email you and call you when things strike me. And I'm like, Jessica, Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy talking to you so much. I would really love that. (laughs) Same. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm sure my listeners have been enriched by hearing you. Thank you. Thank you, Gloria. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Perez podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. See you next time.